welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Stephanie Martin. I'm Medical Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, and today we're going to be talking about iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy. Now, this may not sound like a very exciting topic, but it's one that's near and dear to my heart. I'm very passionate about anemia. I find the pathophysiology of it very fascinating, and it's also motivating because not only is it common, but it's easy to manage, it's easy to recognize, it's easy to treat, it's very satisfying to treat. So this is a something where we can actually have an impact and potentially improve patient outcomes. Now in the United States, about 20% of pregnant women are actually anemic, that meet the definition of anemia. It's one of the most common things that we encounter in pregnant patients. But in my experience, it's commonly underdiagnosed, underappreciated, and it's another example of normalizing the anemia, normalizing the abnormal that we've talked so much about in previous podcasts. It really does need to be addressed. You know, over the years, I've asked myself many, many times, why do people ignore anemia? What is it about anemia that allows us to normalize it and ignore it? Well, I think it's it's several different things that contribute to this. Number one is I think people don't generally just don't understand the definitions of anemia and they don't recognize it when it's happening. You know, patients don't really complain about it. The symptoms are pretty subtle. Uh, and so patients, you know, they really tolerate the anemia remarkably well, although in my experience, in hindsight, once you correct it, then they recognize, oh my gosh, the, all that stuff that I was feeling, that brain fog, fatigue, that was due to anemia. And it's, it's preventable, it's manageable, it's fixable. The complications and things that happen because of anemia can be delayed and often and commonly attributed to other things. And in addition, I find that a lot of practitioners get intimidated by working patients up for anemia. They don't know how to interpret iron studies, and so they maybe just throw iron at the problem, put someone on iron, and then never follow up and follow through to see, is it working, or was iron even really the problem to begin with? Now, I don't want you to be intimidated. Don't worry. Before this podcast is over, you're going to know the only two iron tests that you, that, that you need to know in order to take care of a pregnant woman with iron deficiency anemia. Now, to get started, we need to define anemia. Um, and to do that, we have to talk about dilutional anemia of pregnancy. Now, this name drives me nuts because pregnant women should not be anemic. So it's not an actual dilutional anemia, it's dilutional effect that happens. So this contributes to our confusion in thinking that anemia is normal. It's not normal. There is a dilutional effect that takes place, but it should never result in true anemia. Now what happens? When a patient becomes pregnant, the amount of red blood cells increases significantly in their blood. But so does the plasma, the, the fluid around the red blood cells. But the plasma increase is significantly greater than the amount of red cell increase. So that's going to drop the hematocrit compared to their non-pregnant state. That doesn't mean it makes them anemic. It means that their hemoglobin hematocrit are lower than they were when they were not pregnant, but it should still be in the normal range. So what are the definitions? Well, in the first and third trimesters of pregnancy, the hematocrit should be above 33%. 
meaning the hemoglobin should be above 11. In the second trimester, we let them get a little bit lower, so a hematocrit above 32% or a hemoglobin above 10.5 is normal. And once you get below those thresholds, then we can further classify it into mild, moderate, or severe. So if we look at hemoglobin levels, mild anemia is gonna be that 10 to 11 range, moderate, the seven to 10 range, and severe anemia is defined as a hemoglobin of less than seven grams per deciliter. I don't think anybody has difficulty recognizing severe anemia when it happens, but it's the mild and even the upper limit of moderate levels where I see it just ignored and normalized uh, and really rationalized away as a, as a change that happens in pregnancy, and that should never be the case. So why do pregnant women get anemic? Well, the overwhelming majority of anemia in pregnancy is related to iron deficiency. Now, iron is the building block for red blood cells. And if you don't have adequate iron, then you're not going to be able to make the, the amount of red blood cells that are necessary in pregnancy. So iron is essential, not just for red blood cell production, but for a lot of biologic processes in our body. Now, because it's so common, more than 98% of anemia in pregnancy is iron deficiency, that's what we're going to focus on in this podcast. And I'll mention a little bit about other types, but Primarily, we're focusing on iron deficiency today because that's, you know, if you don't do any additional workup and you diagnose a patient as being anemic, the vast majority of the time, you're going to be correct if you assume that they are iron deficient and you address that. Now, you can also have iron deficiency without anemia. and In fact, it's quite common. And if they enter the pregnancy and they are already low on iron, but maybe have an abnormal hemoglobin level, it will lead to anemia if you don't fix their iron deficiency. The problem is that our screening tools look for a low blood count, but we're not typically looking for iron deficiency. You have to be suspicious. You have to be checking for it. Now, what would make you suspect that a patient is iron deficient or anemic? Um, well, the symptoms, sure. Symptoms are, are actually fairly common. They're just kind of mild for most patients. Many patients are asymptomatic or, or have really nonspecific symptoms. And it's gonna, whether or not your patient has symptoms is gonna depend on a lot of different things. I mean, how severe is the anemia? A patient who's got a hemoglobin of seven is gonna be much more likely to be symptomatic compared to a patient who has a hemoglobin of 10.5. The patient's age, younger patients you would expect to tolerate better than older patients. Any other comorbidities? Do they have kidney disease? Do they have hypertension? Are they obese? Do they have diabetes, etc.? How rapid did this come on? Now, a patient can become anemic from hemorrhage. She's going to be much more symptomatic than a patient who has uh, long-standing anemia from inadequately replaced iron. Um, and so really, in order to diagnose this, you've got to suspect it, number one, and you've got to do the labs. Now, I'm going to talk about labs later in the podcast, so hang in there. I need to, to lay some groundwork more for, for this. In my experience, the most common symptoms, well, first of all, most patients have no symptoms in my experience, but when you start asking and pointing out specific symptoms, they're, they're much more likely to go, yeah, I do experience that, but they're, they're also more likely to just attribute it to other things. So symptoms like fatigue, mental fog, um, and craving ice. When you start asking those specific questions, patients are like, yeah, yeah, I do feel that. I do feel that. Now, of course, it can be due to other things as well. The real test is, 
when you fix their iron deficiency anemia, do these things get better? And in my experience, they get better pretty quickly if you replace their iron pretty quickly and build their hemoglobin back. Now, ice craving. Um, the medical assistants in my office laugh at me because they now know to ask patients, do you crave ice? And it's an unbelievable how common patients will say, how commonly they'll say, yes, I, oh my gosh, or they'll laugh and look at their partner because they, they know how, how intense this ice craving can be. I, I have so many stories about this, but one that comes to mind, you know, patients with ice craving from, or ice pica, it's called, uh, from anemia or iron deficiency anemia, they crave specific types of ice. They, usually it's the little pellet ice, it's very crunchy, it's easy to chew. And uh, this one patient said to me, I, I asked her, I said, are you craving ice? And she's like, oh my gosh, it's insane. Like they make special trips to the store for ice. They go to certain locations. And those of you in the United States will know about Sonic ice, etc." And uh, her husband just starts laughing. And he's like, I bought her a very expensive ice machine for Christmas because her ice cravings were so intense and I had to apologize because I, you know, this patient had severe iron deficiency anemia and once we fixed her ice, her iron uh, uh, stores and corrected her issues, her ice cravings completely went away. And of course they can crave other things as well, but ice is a very, very common one. We don't really understand exactly why. There's a lot of theories about, you know, maybe it's to stimulate you know, uh, the brain and make you more awake and, uh, incur, you know, uh, kind of try to overcome that mental fogginess that happens with iron deficiency anemia, but we don't really understand it 100%. Now, why should we care? If the patient's not complaining of about a lot of things, uh, you know, why do we even care about iron deficiency anemia? Well, there's, there's consequences for mom and, and baby if you don't uh, address iron deficiency anemia. Um, any severe maternal morbidity is twice as likely in, in an anemic mom. So if you just look at her having any severe maternal morbidity, she's twice, two times more likely to have something if she's anemic compared to if she, she doesn't. That includes maternal death, seizures like eclampsia and, and hypertensive disorders, the need for transfusion and hysterectomy, presumably related to um, uh, hemorrhage and anemia, and ICU admission is more common. Now, interestingly for baby, some of these make sense, low birth weight, early birth, growth-restricted babies, but there's some compelling information about fetal and neonatal brain development and neurocognitive function later in life that iron deficiency anemia can significantly impact. And, you know, human milk is really low in iron. And for many babies, this is the only dietary source of iron after birth. So they're going to really rely on iron that was stored during their fetal life to support um, hemoglobin and organ development and, and, you know, build their own blood and prevent neonatal anemia. And if that, if the mom is iron deficient, then it's very likely that the baby's going to develop iron deficiency postnatally, and this could be a significant problem and lead to neonatal anemia. But I think it's really poorly recognized and understood. So if this is such a big issue, um, you know, how are we actually screening patients? So I want to stress before I comment on some of the screening guidelines that are currently in existence. Um, in the United States anyway, these guidelines really address screening for anemia, but not iron deficiency. And remember, if you don't have adequate iron, you might be an, not be anemic when you start the pregnancy, but you will be by the time you end the pregnancy, if not sooner. 
Now, in, this center, in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control recommend that all non-pregnant women get screened every five to 10 years during their childbearing years. And if they've got risk factors like you know, heavy bleeding, if they're not taking in adequate amounts of iron in their diet, perhaps they're vegan or some other restrictive type of diet, um, or maybe they've had iron deficiency anemia in the past, then they need to be screened annually. And once they're pregnant in the United States, they get screened at their first prenatal visit, according to the CDC. And they recommend that everybody in pregnancy gets a low dose or 30 milligram oral iron supplement during pregnancy. Now, the American College of OBGYN recommends that they get screened for anemia um, at their first prenatal visit and again at the beginning of the third trimester, and that um, they get low-dose iron supplementation with prenatal vitamins. So that's the, that's the current status of screening and supplementation guidelines in the United States um, at, at this time. Now, I want to call out a specific group of patients that I find oftenly gets um, ignored. And I, I mentioned, you know, that, uh, that if they've had a prior diagnosis of iron deficiency anemia, they should be screened more commonly. Well, when I talk to patients and I ask them about if they have any history of anemia, it's common for them to say, well, I'm only anemic while I'm pregnant. That to me suggests that during pregnancy, they're not, uh, they don't have enough iron stored to meet the needs of the pregnancy. So they become anemic because they've run out of building blocks. Then once the demand goes away, meaning they've delivered, they're able to meet the demands of just living their normal life um, and they correct the anemia, but they're probably not filling their iron tank. They're running out of iron while they're pregnant. They're building it up maybe a little bit in between, but not adequately to meet the needs of pregnancy in between the pregnancy. So they quickly run out. Now, one of my colleagues uses analogy of an iron bucket, which I love. Uh, I think it just makes a lot of sense. And so we've got a bucket full of iron. All of us do, okay? And we've got iron that's filling that bucket. That's with supplements you may be taking, your dietary intake, you know, what you're eating, and also recycled blood cells. Recycled red blood cells are a huge source of iron in our body. And that's what keeps us filling the bucket. But we've also got holes in the bucket. And that's the demand for iron. You know, you've got your normal metabolism, metabolic processes that have to go on. You've got red blood cells that need to be built. And you've got these little bitty holes that are taking iron at the same time you're filling your bucket with iron. But if your bucket is almost empty, okay? So let's say you're starting a pregnancy and your bucket, your iron bucket is almost empty. You've got some, but you're not full, all right? Well, now pregnancy, imagine, is that giant hole in the bucket. Well, really quickly, you're going to run through all the iron that you have, and then you're going to run out. Then the body has no choice but to develop anemia. The hemoglobin levels are just going to drop. So by the time you see a low hemoglobin or hematocrit, that's late in the process. That's not an early finding. That's a late finding. So, you know, patients understand this bucket analogy, too. It's really helpful in helping them understand what's going on. Now, in pregnancy, pregnant patients are going to use their stored iron in order to meet the demands of pregnancy. The average woman has roughly 500 milligrams of iron that's stored. Now, in a single pregnancy, so you've got one baby, she's going to need about 1,000 milligrams of iron. 
So she's got about 500. She's going to need about 1,000. That's for just one baby. You can imagine, we don't really know, but you're going to need a lot more iron if you've got more than one baby in there because there's increased demands for mom and baby, so your iron needs are going to go up. Now, this may not sound like a lot. You're thinking, oh, well, I can buy over-the-counter iron sulfate for 325 milligrams per pill, piece of cake. I'm going to be able to meet my needs. The problem is absorption. Now, in the next podcast, I'm going to go into more about treatment and all the problems with oral iron, etc. But in diet, so most women are typically absorbing less than three milligrams of iron every day from their diet. Less than three milligrams of iron a day from diet. They may be taking in more, but they're not absorbing it very well, and that's pretty common. So if you think that a normal, if you think about it, that a normal term pregnancy is about 280 days and you multiply that times 300 milligrams a day, that means if she's relying on diet alone, then she's going to take in about 840 milligrams a day uh, from her, uh, 840 milligrams over the course of her pregnancy from diet. That's not going to meet the needs of her pregnancy. She is going to have to get into her stores. Now, to meet normal pregnancy needs and not get into your iron stores, she's going to need to take in about 27 milligrams of iron every day through diet and absorb at least a quarter of that just to meet normal pregnancy needs. That's not any increased demand, extra baby, um, needing to... to uh, um, maybe she has a bleeding episode or something along those lines. So it just shows you, you know, this iron ba hemoglobin balance is a little more precarious, I think, than people maybe recognize. Now let's talk about the issues with absorption. So there's differences between heme iron and non-heme iron. Now heme iron are from meat sources, fish sources. This is the most effectively absorbed iron. It doesn't mean you can't get iron from other sources. It means this is what the body is um, going to absorb most effectively. Now, calcium is going to negatively impact that absorption. So, you know, it's something to bear in mind. And this is one of the reasons why we'll tell patients not to take calcium with their iron supplements, etc. Now, non-heme sources, you know, think spinach, um, these are less bioavailable and they're much more likely to be influenced by other dietary factors like taking tea and calcium at the same time as you're taking in uh, this non-heme iron source. So it's just a little bit more challenging to get what you need from non-meat and fish sources of iron. Now, iron absorption in the body happens primarily in the duodenum and upper part of the jejunum. So any patient who has had um, bariatric surgery where those parts of the intestines have been bypassed are going to have problems absorbing iron. This is one of the reasons why your patients who have had bariatric surgery are commonly anemic. And for those patients, you can tell them to take all the oral iron you want and all the dietary iron you want. They're just not going to be able to absorb it adequately and you're going to have to bypass it with IV iron sources. We're going to talk about that in the next podcast. But iron absorption is highly complex. It's variable. It's influenced by a lot of things like how much iron is in the body. What's the demand? Inflammatory states. We know that patients who have inflammatory bowel diseases 
um, have real issues with iron absorption. Um, and it's uh, but the good thing is that the body's a little bit better at absorbing iron when they're iron deficient and also when they're pregnant. But the take-home message here really is that iron absorption is complex. It's variable. It's a little bit unpredictable. And uh, that can be challenging where you're trying to replace iron in a high demand state. Now, I want to shift gears to iron studies. In my opinion, lack of understanding of iron studies is one of the big barriers to doing a proper workup and follow-up for this group of patients. I think people get intimidated by them. They don't understand them. And so they kind of avoid it. First of all, my advice, don't order an iron panel on a pregnant woman. Iron panels have a multitude of tests on them. You don't need them. They are confusing to interpret. All you need is a complete blood count and a ferritin level. That's all you need. Pregnant woman, CBC, and ferritin level tells you everything you need to know um, about your patient. For the vast, vast majority, that's your starting point. CBC and a ferritin level. Now let's dig a little bit deeper into those. So CBC has a bunch of stuff on it. The two things you're going to hone in on, or three things, your hemoglobin, hematocrit, and your mean corpuscular volume, or MCV. Hemoglobin, hematocrit, MCV. Now, I talked earlier about the threshold, the diagnostic threshold, your hematocrit less than 33% in the first and third trimester, less than 32% in the second trimester. Now, MCV is also a very helpful tool because some people will tell me, well, what if it's not iron deficiency anemia? How am I going to know? Do I need to do a big workup on them? Here's the thing. If they don't have iron deficiency anemia, the other possibility is that they have an inherited anemia. So iron deficiency is an acquired anemia. You could also have an inherited anemia. Example, like a thalassemia where the body is programmed to not be able to make the right types and amount of hemoglobin. And as a result, the blood cells are smaller than they should be. So therefore, your mean corpuscular volume or your MCV will be low, typically less than about 80, but you can rely on your lab thresholds to interpret that. So if your MCV is low, that tells you you have a microcytic anemia. Low MCV, low hematocrit, microcytic anemia. Number one cause of microcytic anemia, iron deficiency. Possibility that they have a thalassemia, an inherited cause. You can absolutely have both. Having an inherited anemia is not a reason to ignore iron deficiency. It's a reason to do the appropriate workup. So if you see a low MCV, then your patient should be worked up for an inherited anemia. You can do that with a hemoglobin electrophoresis. Now, ferritin. Ferritin tells you how much iron is stored in the body. That's your stored iron that the body can call on to build red blood cells. It should be above 30, 30 micrograms per liter. Roughly, each one microgram of ferritin is equal to about seven to eight milligrams of stored iron. Generally speaking, if your patient has a ferritin of 70, that's enough to meet the needs of pregnancy 
for most patients because they're also going to be taking in dietary sources. But know that it will be tapped. Okay, the body is going to access that stored iron in order to make red blood cells. Now, the only problem with ferritin, and this is not a reason not to do it, um, but you should be aware, is that it's an acute phase reactant. And so, in some, as particularly in some inflammatory states, it can be falsely elevated. In those cases, it's usually significantly elevated, um, and it's obvious that there's something going on here. Um, but in that situation, if you're concerned about that, or let's say you get a ferritin level and it's, you know, a thousand, you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Then you can order a transferrin percent saturation or a TSAT. This is the only other test that I would use in a pregnant woman to understand her iron status. So transferrin is a molecule that carries iron around the body and delivers it. So when ferritin is liberated and needs to be transported or transferred by this molecule and so how well saturated it is in other words how much iron is being carried by the transferrin molecule is the percent saturation it should be above 15 percent 15 percent the other tests serum iron totally useless no reason to do a serum iron the way i explain this is to it's like ordering a random blood glucose in a diabetic. It'll tell you something, but what you really want to know is their hemoglobin A1C. I want to know what's been happening all along. I don't need to know a random blood sugar at this moment in time for the vast majority of patients. Now, the serum iron is used as part of the T-set calculation, but you do not need to be ordering a serum iron. You're going to order a CBC and a ferritin, and in rare patients, you can order a T-set. I have no objection if you want to do a TSAT instead of a ferritin. It doesn't matter. In my practice, I do ferritin. So CBC and ferritin. If you remember nothing else, that's what you need to know. If you've got a patient who has a hematocrit of less than 33% and a ferritin of less than 30, you've got iron deficiency anemia. Done. You can ignore the normals on your lab slip. That's what you're looking for. So hopefully this has demystified some of the issues of, around iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy. Hopefully you feel a little bit more confident in understanding why it matters um, and who to test for it and what you're actually going to order when you need to take care of one of these patients. In part two of this podcast, I'm going to address treatment of iron deficiency anemia. We'll talk about oral iron treatment, IV iron, and what you need to know there how to know if they're responding, what kind of follow-up do you need to do, and we'll talk about the role of transfusion. So thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook and LinkedIn pages, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcast. Nashville at gmail.com.